Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and it's my joy to welcome you. I, uh, all of us, we are really glad that you decided to come and worship Jesus with us. Now, I know that uh, some of you, you're only here because your mom made you, or uh, because it's just what you do on Easter Sunday, or maybe you got, maybe you had to show up today to either get the girl or to keep the girl. Uh, whatever reason why you're here, that's okay. We're glad you're here. And we also know, maybe you don't know this, but God is sovereign over all things, and God has you here for another reason this morning. What it means is God wants you to hear this sermon this morning. I'll be honest and tell you, it might be the most important thing you ever hear. And I don't say that because I think it's going to be a great sermon or because I think that I'm somebody somebody important. No, I think this might be the most important thing you ever hear because it's the only story that makes sense of the world that we find ourselves living in. Nothing else makes sense. Now, you might not believe that yet, but I ask you to suspend your disbelief for a little while because God just may speak to you today and change your life. So let me pray for us and then I can begin. Father, we thank you for being a God who tells stories, a God who writes history, a God who's unfolding history even as we speak, that you have a purpose and a meaning behind all things There's meaning in the universe, and so we want to discover that. We want to know that. You tell us about all things, including yourself, and we wouldn't really know you. We could go outside and look and say, yeah, this has probably got a creator somewhere, but we wouldn't know you specifically unless you chose to reveal yourself from heaven in your son and in your word. And so this morning, I pray as we come to study your word that you would help us do that. I pray that you'd think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it'd be all of you and none of me, that your people this morning would hear your voice, that those who are sitting in darkness would see a great light. Would you do this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, the text that was just read for us this morning is not a traditional Easter Sunday sermon text. It's actually the Bible's description of mankind's original fall from grace. This is the Bible's answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? The Bible's answer to that question is simple. It's sin. And until you understand what sin is and what sin has done to all of creation, you will never really understand what is wrong with the world. And if you don't understand what's wrong with the world, you won't understand who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do and how the gospel changes everything. Now, many of you... As soon as I use the word sin, you want to tune out right now. Many of us think that talking about sin is just trying to make people feel bad. It's putting a guilt trip on someone or trying to squeeze everyone into our own personal little moral box. But that's not what it's about at all. Too many of us have just thrown away the whole concept of sin because we actually just don't understand it. Let me tell you why I think we still need to keep this concept of sin. If you get rid of sin, 
you get rid of all universal standards of goodness, justice, love, and truth. If you get rid of the concept of sin, everything becomes just a personal opinion. So if you were to see a man beating a woman in the middle of the park, you would have no moral right to intervene. How dare you stop someone doing something they want to do? Why are your ideas of what's right and wrong any better than the woman beaters? See, Christians, we know there is objective truth out there. We know there's, some, there's God who's the definition of all things good and there is sin. And so we can say it's a sin to do that. And so we have a moral right, a moral obligation to actually step in and save this woman or help this woman. We know it intrinsically in our soul because we're made in the image of God. And we also know it from the word of God. It would actually be a sin for us to not help her in this moment. So if you lose the concept of sin, if you don't believe in sin, you actually have no right to impose your beliefs on anyone else. You have no right to stop this man from beating this woman. Now, another reason we want to keep the concept of sin is because without it, we have no hope. Now, that's confusing because many people think that you talk about sin and it makes me feel bad and I lose hope. When in reality, if you stop talking about sin, you're actually going to become more hopeless. Here's why. Let me say it as simply as I can. God says that everything that is wrong with this world is the result of sin. That's the diagnosis of all of our problems. In one sense, that's the bad news. But in another sense, it's actually good news. Because it finally tells us what's wrong with us. And the rest of the Bible shows us what God has done to heal us, to fix us, to redeem us, and to restore everything that sin has destroyed. See, if you don't have the diagnosis of the problem as sin, you're going to always be pointing at something else and blaming that. You're going to be pointing at some other problem over there when in reality that the best thing that is will only be a symptom of the problem and not actually the cause. So one of the most frustrating things about life is if you're sick in your body and you don't know what's wrong. And really the first good news you hear sometimes is from the doctor, here's what's wrong with you. Here's the diagnosis. And so when God looks at us and says, it's sin, in one sense, that's good news. Because it tells us God knows what's wrong with us, but it's also good news in the fact that God has done something to defeat sin for us. So when you look out in the world and you say, no, 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 I don't believe in sin, what you're going to naturally do is you're going to start pointing to some things, thinking that's the problem when it's actually not really the problem. You'll look out at the world and say, what's wrong with the world? And you'll say something like poverty or violence or corruption, and you'll blame the rich or the powerful or some other class of people, and that's going to lead either to more oppression or it's going to actually lead to a sense of hopelessness. Because if the problem's way out there, if the problem is somebody else, well, what hope can you have in changing someone else? You'll have no hope. You will only grow in fear in anger and pride. 
See, when you lose the concept of sin, depression actually increases. Because you realize that the world is broken, there's something deeply wrong with it, and there's nothing you can do about it. And this is why as we've moved away from the story of Scripture, as we've moved away from Christianity defining the worldview of America, we've actually gone deeper into depression. We've gone deeper into anxiety. We've gone deeper into hopelessness and despair and suicide. Why? Because we all know there's something wrong with the world, and we also know we're too small to do anything about it. But if the problem is sin... God has done something about it. And he has told us what we can do about it. That we can have faith. That we can turn from our sins. That we can take responsibility for our feelings and actions and do something about them. We can look out into the world and we can call others to repent when they're doing something that's called sin. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at sin. We're going to look at sin from Genesis chapter 3. Now, I preached on this. I started last week. This is kind of part two, so you can go back and listen to that sermon if you want. This chapter tells us several things about sin. I want to look at four briefly. One, sin's source. Two, sin's essence. Three, sin's effects. And lastly, sin's cure. First, and I'm going to be really brief here. God tells us that sin originally came from one of God's created angels. So God, did, God was not the originator of evil. God did not create evil. God did not create sin. God created Lucifer, and Lucifer sinned. Now, Lucifer was an angel, an intelligent, spiritual being who was gloriously beautiful. And yet, here, here's, the, here's what we need to know. He was gloriously beautiful in his creation, yet he desired more. He wanted to have God's throne. He was a created being who was striving to be more than just a created being. He actually wanted to be God. This led Lucifer, who Jesus called Satan and the devil, words that mean deceiver, to be judged by God and thrown out of heaven. It was then, after thrown out of heaven to the earth, that Satan entered into the garden, took the form of a serpent, and tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against their creator God. So again, the source of all sin is Satan himself. Jesus called him a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He said Satan's mission is to steal, kill, and destroy God's people and God's kingdom. Okay, so that's the source of sin. We look out and when we see brokenness and we see murder and we see rape and we see all these horrible things, we know the source of that is Satan. Secondly, what is sin's essence? Well, the essence of something is its core or essential nature. Sin's essence is the desire to sit on God's throne. Now, that's interesting. Most people think sin is something naughty, right? Hand in the cookie jar type stuff. Sin is something real fun, but, you know, you might get in trouble for it. That's not what's, The essence of sin is wanting to kick God off his throne and crawl up there in his place. The desire to be God's, to determine what's best for me on my own, 
See, remember, in the beginning, Satan wanted that power. He wanted that glory. He didn't want to be just a created angel. He wanted to be higher than that. He wanted to be something more than God created him to be. He wanted his own way. So Satan wanted God's throne and chose to rebel against him. Well, we see the exact same impetus in Adam and Eve. Remember, God was so good to them, he filled them with a garden full of glorious trees. They could do anything they wanted to do in that place. They could, I say, it's a garden full of yeses. Can I go to that mountain? Yes. Can I swim in that lake? Yes. Can I climb that tree? Yes. Can I eat that? 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 No. One no. There was one no in the Garden of Eden. Everything else was a bunch of yeses. And the one tree that they were commanded to not to eat from, interestingly enough, we're not told anything about it. We're not saying it's like, this is a spooky tree. This is a haunted tree. This is a tree of death. And it looks like, you know, it's like a whomping willow from Harry, Water, Harry Potter, right? Like, it's like, it's not like that. It just looks like a normal tree with fruit on it. And the fruit is good to eat and, it's good, and looks good. And, and, and so God says, don't eat of that tree. If you eat of it, you'll surely die. That's all he says to Adam and Eve, right? Why? Because God wanted them to trust him. He, God wanted them to, to believe that he's good, he's gracious, he's kind, he knows what's best for them. All he said was, don't eat of it and you will die. Parents, now you know when you tell your kids that they can't do something, what do they always say? Why? And even if you respond, because you'll die, they'll go, but why? Right? The, the, and we, the answer is, because I want you to trust me, because I know what's best for you, because I'm good. Do you trust me that I am a good heavenly father or not? Do you not trust me? See, ultimately, the temptation was, it's up to you to believe I'm good or not. But we know what happens. Satan, the deceiver, comes to them, and he says, quote, you will not surely die. Give me a break. You've ate from all of those trees in the garden. What's one more tree? Doesn't look, kill, doesn't look deadly, does it? I bet you that, that's the prime rib tree more than likely. See, they didn't know about prime rib yet. All right. That tree tastes especially good. That tree will give you something that God, God is holding out on you. He says, when you eat of that tree, your eyes are going to be opened. And you'll be like God. You hear that? You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is saying, if you eat of that tree, you will be more than you are right now. You will become enlightened. You will be like God. See, the essence of sin is the desire to sit on God's throne. It's the desire of autonomy. To be a law unto myself. To determine for myself what's good, what's right, what's true, what's beautiful. And the reality is, by definition, only God is autonomous. Only God is a law unto himself. God, by definition, is the essence of goodness, truth, life, and beauty itself. He is the standard. So Adam and Eve were tempted with the same thing that led Satan to try to usurp God's throne. Again, the essence of sin is to want to be our own gods, 
to sit on God's throne and determine good and evil by our own personal standards. Now, let me ask you, how many times have you done this in your life? Yeah, I know what God's word says about it, but here's what I think. No offense, but who cares what you think? It's not your universe. It's not your universe, your universe right? It's not you, your world. Who cares, right? How many times did you say, yeah, I know what God says about marriage or sex or gender or money, but I'm going to do my own thing and see how it works out. Well, God says that desire is the essence of sin. To say, I am my own and I'll do what I want to do. So that's the source and the essence of sin. Now let's take a look at the effects of sin, and they are legion. Here's what the Bible teaches. Everything that is wrong with the world is an effect of sin. Now what I'm going to do here is I'm going to hit a couple of these briefly. Actually, I'm going to hit five, more than a couple. But I am going to be brief, and I'm going to work my way backwards. We're going to start in Genesis 3, verses 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. One of the effects of sin is that 100% of us in this room today will die. We all will die. God told Adam and Eve that the consequences for disobeying him was death. And even though they didn't drop dead immediately, death entered the world and now all human beings will die. He says, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So one of the effects of sin is the fact that every single one of us are dying right now. Number two, look at verse 17 through 19. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you are taken. Work is extremely difficult and full of of frustration. That is an effect of sin. He says, cursed is the ground, right? By the sweat of your face, you shall eat it till you return to the ground. Before sin entered the world, work was good and it was full of blessing. Now, all of our work is more difficult and creation itself is set against us in some ways that frustrate our best laid plans with bad weather, with weeds and all kinds of different things. Like, you know, you got a paycheck last week, but guess what you got to do this week in order to earn that next paycheck? Work, right? You know, and it's coming really soon. You're going to mow that grass. And then six days later, you're going to have to mow that grass again. No matter what effort and work you put in last year or even in the fall, in a week or so, those little demonic weeds are going to start popping up in your yard. <laughs> Guaranteed, right? Work has now been frustrated. It's hard. It's, we have words like back-breaking labor, right? By the sweat of your brow. No one makes a living easily. It's hard work. 
This is a result of the fall. Number three, our marriages and relationships are frustrated. Look at verse 11 to 12. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here we go. First, we see Adam and Eve both failing to take ownership and responsibility for their sin. God comes and says, what have you done? And Adam blames Eve and God in the process. It's this woman that you gave me. And what does Eve do? Eve blames the devil. Ever since this moment, we have been blame-shifting responsibility. We don't want to take responsibility for our sins. We're so afraid of saying, yes, I did it. Yes, I'm guilty. Yes, the guilt is upon me. What do we say now? From the, from the earliest age, we say, oh, it's not my fault, mom. It's not my fault. You have a screaming child. You have two children in a room. One of them starts screaming bloody murder. You walk in. What happened? I don't know. It was the toy. Uh-huh, it was the toy swung by a sinner. That's what did it. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure, right? But what do we want to say? You, it's not my fault. Can't blame me. Now, listen, we know that's a little childish. And so we, many of us, we go to college or we read books and we go to college to be educated on now, you know, who, who is it? It's now sophisticated to blame these people. You can actually blame these people and not look like a child. So who do we blame? We blame our parents, we blame our spouse, we blame our kids, we blame our schools, we blame our governments. We even blame inanimate objects like guns instead of placing the blame right where it lies on human beings and their sinful choices. Blame shifting is the result of the fall. And then to Eve, God says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, many ladies I know want to scratch that out of their Bible. What does it mean? It means that Eve will be tempted to push away from her God-given role as helper for her husband, and she will now desire to control him. She will desire to usurp his leadership. She will desire to sit on the throne of the relationship. I don't, I don't know, is, is this still a thing? Bunch of cowards. He's like, I don't know, I'll tell you at the door when I see you. I'll whisper when I leave. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Do women sometimes want to rebel from the leadership of their husbands and take control of things? Sometimes, possibly. Your neighbor, maybe. I know, not you, right? And likewise, Adam will be tempted either to abuse his God-given authority by not loving his wife like Christ loved the church, or he will abdicate his responsibility and put it on his wife's shoulders and let her take the lead. This is equivalent to hearing a bump in the night, men, and going, honey, go check that out. <laughs> That's going to be his sinful tendency. This is why marriage is so difficult. 
Two sinners wanting their way over God's ways. Just as we all want to sit on God's throne and determine what is right for ourselves, we take that same attitude into marriage and we say, I really don't care what God says about marriage. I really don't care what God says about gender. I really don't care about God, what God says about the roles that each should take. I don't care what he says about that. I want my marriage to look the way that I want it. I want marriage on my own terms. I want to be the one that says what it is. Well, guess what? Surprisingly, again, that's sin and that will never go well for us. Then we see in verse 16 here, he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Well, my wife has given birth to five beautiful children, and each of these moments are seared into my mind as some of the most violent and glorious moments in my life. These moments are full of pain, heavy breathing, screaming, and blood, and yet end in unspeakable glory. That first sight of your baby. Their first gasp of breath into our Father's world. Their first cry, all glory, but glory through blood and gore. It's like, it's like a Friday that results in a Sunday. Who knows what giving birth would have been like if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. Now, I could go on and on about the effects of sin, but... I want to show you one more that you might not think about very much. And it's that this, sin actually kills us spiritually before it kills us physically. In other words, sin causes us to become enemies of God. It cuts us off from God spiritually. Since God is holy and we are not, we run from God like the mouse runs from the cat. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the blame shifting begins. Now here we begin to see the absolute absurdity of sin. Listen, sin is not rational. Sin doesn't make sense. Sin is foolishness. It's absolutely absurd. It's insane. Now, why do I say that? Because God himself is the source of all goodness, all truth, all joy, all happiness, all beauty. He is the source of everything we desire in life. C.S. Lewis has said, every one of us is born with a God-sized hole in our heart that can only be filled with God himself. So we 
the Bible also says that he, he has put eternity into our, into our heart, into our human heart. So we desire things that only God has. We desire joy unspeakable and full of glory. That we want, un, we don't want just a little bit of happiness. We want unending happiness. We want, don't just want a good life. We want eternal life. And yet, all of those things are found in the eternal triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who alone is holy. And because of our own sinfulness, we try to run from Him. Can you imagine that? Seeing your happiness, seeing your joy, seeing your peace, seeing your comfort, and running from it. Why? Because we know he comes with those things. We want the things that only, only God possesses, goodness, truth, and beauty, but we don't want God himself because he's holy and we're not. Now, this is equivalent to saying to your parents, listen, I don't want anything to do with you at all, I, I, but, I, but I still want your money. Like I want you, I want you to pay for college. I want, I like the car, pay for the insurance. I do get hungry. I need, I need some money in my bank account. So I need everything that you have, but I don't want to have anything to do with you. But it's even worse than that. Because as C.S. Lewis says in another place, quote, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no such thing. So this is one of the greatest effects of sin that we probably rarely think about. We need God in order to be truly happy. We need him to live a full and vibrant life, but we want to run and hide from him. We actually try to hide from God by not thinking about him. We try to hide from God by staying away from church as much as possible. We try to hide from God with our careers and our busy schedules. We think if I can just stay busy enough, I won't actually have to deal with the fact that I'm actually running from God, my creator. This is why many times in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., you wake up and there's nowhere to go. And you get swarmed with despondent thoughts. Depressing feelings, fear, anxiety. Why? There's nowhere to go in the middle of the night. You're not busy. Everybody else is asleep. And now you're alone with your God and your conscience. So that's five effects of sin. Now let's take a look at the cure for sin. It's interesting here in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings we see a golden nugget in the text or a breadcrumb, if you will, of what God is going to do to cure the curse of sin. We see it actually in God's pronouncement of his curse upon Satan. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall 
bruise his heel. Now, many people fail to understand what's going on here. And I'm quite frankly getting tired of people commenting on this and kind of laughing it off. Ha, ha, ha. Christians believe that the devil was a snake and this is how the snake lost his legs or this is, ha, ha, how foolish. I heard Tim Keller give a sick burn on this and he just said, listen, if you don't understand how to read grown-up books, then ask somebody else for help. Okay. <laughs> because here's what's going on. This isn't some kind of just-so story about a snake losing its legs or why humans and snakes don't get along. This is a prophetic utterance, a prophetic word, a prophecy. Now, what's a prophecy? A prophecy is a powerful word that has been spoken or written down that has a meaning that isn't fully understood in the moment, okay? It's spoken and said, and people kind of, most of them are like, okay, And and they think they get it, but they don't get it until later something happens. Then they read back and go, whoa, that's what that was talking about. Well, this prophetic word here about a snake and Eve's offspring being at odds with one another and someone coming to crush the snake's head, but he will take a wound in his heel. This thing was not going to be understood until thousands of years later when it actually happened. Let me put it into plain language. Satan is called here the serpent. He is the ultimate source of sin and is ultimately responsible for all of sin's effects upon us and the rest of creation. From this point on, mankind will be divided into two groups of people. Those who want to love God and obey him and keep God on the throne, and those who choose to listen to Satan and usurp God's throne and go about it their own way. This prophecy says that one day, an offspring of Eve, literally the seed of Eve, the word is seed, will come and crush the head of the serpent, and yet he will take a wound in the process. Have you ever wondered why there's so many genealogies in the Bible? This is why there's genealogies in the Bible. From the very beginning, they're tracking the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. They're tracking the lineage of Eve. They're looking for her offspring. They're looking for the one who's supposed to come who will be the snake crusher. The one who will cure sin for us. Well, I got good news for you. That's exactly who Jesus was, and that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus crushed the head of Satan in a way that no one expected. See, we're looking for a victorious warrior who would ride into battle and conquer his foe and just cut the head off the snake. But that's not how Jesus did it. Why? Because Jesus was prophesied to have a mortal wound, to have his heel bruised in the process. So what did Jesus do? Jesus conquered sin and death, our greatest enemies, by allowing sinful men to kill him in the most brutal, public, and shameful way possible. He was crucified naked for all to see in front of his own mother and closest followers. The shame of this deed is just unconscionable. Why? Why did Jesus die this way? Why did he take the curse in this fashion? Why such an ugly and brutal death? 
The elders right now are reading a book on the incarnation by Athanasius, a fourth century pastor, and he said this. He let the devil bring his worst to show that the devil's worst is no match for the snake crusher. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the devil's best punch and then he stands back up three days later and walks out of the grave to never die again. Jesus put death in his grave through his own death and resurrection. Jesus is the snake crusher whose heel was bruised and yet he crushed the head of the serpent. This, my friends, is the cure of sin. It's the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Sin is what's wrong with you and redemption, the gospel, is what Jesus Christ has done to make all things new. Now, as I close, let me briefly explain three ways here, four ways here, that Jesus has cured us from the curse of sin. One, the penalty of sin has been paid by Jesus. Romans 6, 3 says this, for the wages of sin is death. When you sin, you earn death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died so that we could have eternal life with him if we put our faith and trust in Christ. So the penalty of sin has been paid by Jesus. Secondly, the power of sin has been broken by Jesus. Romans 6, 18 says this, Now, because of what Jesus Christ has done and when you believe in Christ, now you are free from your slavery to sin and you have become slaves to righteous living. What does this mean? We are born slaves to sin. We come into this world not as perfect, not as morally righteous, not as sinless. We come in as sinners and we sin, right? We're slaves to sin. But when Christ comes in and the Holy Spirit comes into our heart, he removes that slavery. He frees us from the slavery to sin and he makes us, interestingly enough, his own slaves, his own servants to do good in the world. So Christians have been set free from the power of sin. Third, the source of sin, Satan himself has been judged and will be judged again at the end of all things. We can look at Revelation chapter 20, verse two, and look at this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. It's hell itself. And a great chain. And what did he do? He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy that happened in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent in his death and resurrection, but Jesus is going to wrap a chain around his neck and throw him in hell where he's going to live forever in judgment on his, when he comes back again. That's what's happening to the snake. That's what's happening to the serpent. So think about it. Our future, the reason, the source of all sin will be judged, will be condemned, will be sent to hell. And that brings us to the last thing. All of the presence of sin and all of the effects of sin will be removed from us and from this creation. Look at Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Look, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Where? From where? From the throne. Guess who's sitting there? Jesus is sitting there, not us. From the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Here's the good news of the gospel. There's coming a time God's redemption is at work in us right now. He's cleansing us from all sin so that we won't run from God like the mouse runs from the cat. The end result of heaven is that we'll get to dwell with God, be with the presence in the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty. We'll get to dwell in his presence forever. Now keep reading. They will see his face. The beatific vision, this is called. Your soul was created to see the face of God. Every sunset whispers his name. Every taste of delicious food whispers his name. Every good feeling you've ever had in your life whispers the name of God and one day you'll see his face. Look, and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They'll need no lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We're, we're here. No, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All of the presence and effects of sin will be removed and we'll get to live forever with God without the deleterious effects of sin in our own life and in the world. All of this is promised to us in the gospel. All of this was purchased by Jesus Christ. He came and lived the perfect life. He died the substitutionary death. He rose again, victorious over the grave, and he's coming again to make all things new. This is the good news of the gospel. Will you believe it this morning? Let me pray for us. Father God, there is no hope outside of this glorious good news. We can look out in the world and we can see everything going wrong, but we just, we're powerless to make it right. Our hope Our hope is that Jesus Christ has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. We put our hope in him. And we know that his second coming is just as certain as his first coming was. So we look forward to that. And even right now, Lord, Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, before you went to your death, you had the last supper. You redefined this Passover meal with your disciples and you sat down with them and you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body that will be broken for you. And then you took the cup of the covenant and you said, this is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant spilled out for you. That we are made right with God now through the work of Jesus and not through our own merit. Father, all the Christians in this room, we come and we eat this together with you right now thankful for your work, thankful for your salvation. Thank you for the new covenant. I pray even now, those who don't believe, you would give them the faith to believe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.